The StoryCast is brought to you by Audible.com. If you're like me, you love to read, but you don't have a lot of time. But what you do have is time in your car or mowing the lawn or rocking your kid to sleep. So get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at audible.com slash storycast. Hey, it's Russell. Just before we get started, a quick programming note. We've made it to the final show of the first season of the StoryCast. In the last nine months since October 2015, we've had 16 episodes every other week. We'll be taking July and August off to begin working on season two coming in the fall. But don't worry. We're not completely going away this summer. We'll still be back for a little fun shorty every single Friday until season two kicks off. This first inaugural season of the StoryCast has been fun and exhilarating for me, and I hope it has been for you too. What started as an experiment has turned into what I think is a pretty good show, and we can only get better. We've continued reimagining how to make this show better, and we're working on sponsorships to be able to put more time into stories, interviews, research, and writing that make up the StoryCast. So, thanks for listening so far. Enjoy this season finale, and I can't wait to tell some more stories in season two. And if you like the show, please go over to the iTunes store and leave us a review. It helps us raise in the charts. Thank you. Rings are everywhere in this life, from the formative to the everyday. You may be surprised just how often a ring surrounds the ideas, moments, and semantics that we encounter every day. Rings all around us tell the stories of us. When your phone or your doorbell rings, it connects us on a human level in our interactions. The contents of your key ring They get you into or moving towards everywhere you go every day. The rings of a tree mark the years of its life and tell the history of the tree's story. Here in the U.S. and many other places worldwide, freedom rings from shore to shore, from border to border, and within hearts and minds. You can ring a bell, and something you're trying to remember can also ring a bell. There are rings in the circus, and for boxers and wrestlers, Anita Ward sang about ringing her bell, and the man in black told the story of his ring of fire. We throw rings for sport, played ring around the rosy, and enjoy beverages packaged in plastic ones. Five colored rings even define the greatest games in the land every two years. Rings in films gave us seven days and were dubbed my precious. And if there's a ring around your finger, that tells the story of who you love who loves you, and a lot about who you are. This time on the StoryCast, tales of rings and their stories that ring true. True Facts, Cassius Clay, better known as Muhammad Ali, was born in Kentucky in 1942 and passed away on June 3rd, 2016. He was an athlete, boxer, philanthropist, activist, and role model to many. He became an Olympic gold medalist in 1960 and the world heavyweight boxing champion in 1964. 
But what may be the most true thing about Ali, the son of a sign painter and a maid, is that he had the right attitude about hard work and resolve. Ali said, don't quit, suffer now, and live the rest of your life as a champion. And he did, and he was. This is his true story, written by Matthew Williams of the Huffington Post, about a life that left an impact even greater outside of the ring. The greatest is gone. The flame that roared furiously through the 1960s and 70s, that faded but continued to burn brightly over the following four decades, is extinguished. But Muhammad Ali's light will never truly go out, for his extraordinary life and achievements will continue to spark a fire of inspiration in the hearts of people across the globe. Millions of words have been and will continue to be written about this great man. What can I possibly say that hasn't been said a thousand times before? I can say what he meant to me. And in considering the huge influence that this one man has had on an ordinary, everyday life such as mine, we can gain the merest glimpse of the incalculable impact that this one life has had. If Rocky Balboa opened the door to my lifelong love affair with boxing, it was Muhammad Ali that ushered me through. Whilst watching the early Rocky films, my dad would always be telling me that Apollo Creed was a real person, his name, Muhammad Ali. As I set out on my boxing education with the pictorial history of boxing as my first and most trusted guide, it quickly became apparent that far from a Hollywood exaggeration of greatness, Creed was but the merest approximation of the real-life fistic Superman upon whom he was based. I read and reread the stories of his bouts with fearsome adversaries, Liston, Foreman, Frazier, Norton, Shavers, a murderer's row of heavyweights, each of whom could have reigned as champion for a very long time in less formidable times. And in the days before YouTube, a VHS video called Champions Forever introduced me to the incomparable skill, grace, and beauty of the man who stood above them all, one champion to rule over them on an unprecedented three occasions. I learned that here was the most uniquely gifted heavyweight to ever step between the ropes, a dancing master of precision punching, gliding around the ring, whilst delivering blurringly fast combinations of punches, almost exclusively to the head of his opponent, arms by his side, leaning back from the punches, allowing himself to take the brutal punishment on the ropes from some of the hardest punches ever delivered on a man. Ali defied all conventional boxing wisdom, using his unique gifts to show the world just how beautiful boxing could be. In perhaps his most celebrated performance, Ali produced a dazzling display to take apart Cleveland Big Cat Williams, dismantling and dispatching his opponent in three of the most breathtaking rounds of virtuoso boxing skills that you could ever wish to see. In watching this performance, we see something else too. Something that made Ali not just a great fighter, but an even greater man. For this mesmerizing display of clinical punching was born of compassion compassion for a fighter whose once intimidating prowess had been blunted by the bullet that ripped through his abdomen in 1965, almost killing him. Ali knew that the Williams he would be facing was no longer the man that Sonny Liston considered the hardest puncher he ever met, and so he set out to stop Williams early, going about his work with a beautiful brutality that dispatched his opponent in three rounds, saving him the punishment of a prolonged beating. Liston, Frazier, Foreman, any one of Ali's victories over these tremendously powerful men would be enough to secure a place among the fistic immortals, five victories, 
and in some of the most memorable fights in boxing history, place Ali on a summit that no one else could possibly approach. And yet for all of these towering achievements, it is what Ali stood for outside of the ring that secures his place not just in boxing history, but in human history. This man that achieved so much in his chosen endeavor, a man who plied his trade using unique tools fashioned with an individualized brand of the rarest craftsmanship, will be remembered above all for his strengths of character, the power of his principles, and for his dignity in facing the erosion of his physical prowess as Parkinson's disease ravaged his once supremely abled body. In refusing to be drafted by the U.S. Army to fight in Vietnam in protest of the treatment of black people in his home country, and in standing by the principles of his religious beliefs, Muhammad Ali gave up everything that he had worked so hard to achieve in the boxing ring, becoming a social and sporting pariah as he was sentenced to jail and stripped of his heavyweight title. Ali was robbed of three years of his physical peak, but remained unwavering in his commitment to ideals, refusing to compromise his principles for the mere comfortable acceptance of the morals of his time. In doing so, Ali gave voice to and became a symbol for the dispossessed and downtrodden, becoming the people's champion that refused to buckle to the demands of the establishment and refused to be what they demanded him to be. Following retirement from boxing, Ali faced his greatest battle as illness stripped him of many of the things that made him great, including his voice and his physical grace. As this once supreme athlete became a prisoner in his own broken body, he continued to fight and refused to hide his debilitating condition from the world. In his disability, Ali continued to represent himself as he had in his extraordinary physical ability, with dignity, grace, and courage. Never was this more apparent than the night he stood before the world, the once great athlete shaking against his volition as he lit the Olympic flame to open the Atlanta Games of 1996. Ali showed me that boxing is beautiful. He even showed me that the greatest can lose, but that defeat is not disaster, and that failure doesn't have to be permanent. He taught me that all the material goods and titles in the world mean nothing if you have them by means of compromising your principles. He showed me that you can lose so much of what makes you you, status, reputation, livelihood, health, and use these challenges to live more fully in love and in faith. The greatest is gone, but as long as there is boxing, and as long as there is injustice, stigma, and discrimination, the example of this brilliant, beautiful, boastful, and blessed man will live on. God bless you, champ, and sleep well. You've earned it. True fact, the first telephone was invented by Alexander Graham Bell and Thomas Watson in 1876. By 1910, 5.8 million homes in the U.S. had telephones, and for many years, there was a real human being at your beck and call, the operator, the information line, which became directory assistance, which became automated and charged the fee. But for a little boy at the advent of the telephone, a ring to the operator would always find the information he'd need. 
Here's StoryCast contributor Jason Perry Stevens reading Paul Villard's 1966 publication titled A True Story. When I was quite young, my family had one of the first telephones in our neighborhood. I remember well the polished oak case fastened to the wall on the lower stair landing. The shiny receiver hung on the side of the box. I even remember the number, 105. I was too little to reach the telephone, but used to listen with fascination when my mother talked into it. Once she lifted me up to speak to my father, who was away on business. Magic. Then I discovered that somewhere inside that wonderful device lived an amazing person. Her name was Information Please, and there was nothing that she did not know. My mother could ask for anybody's number, and when our clock ran down, information please immediately supplied the correct time. My first personal experience with this genie in the receiver came one day when my mother was visiting a neighbor. Amusing myself at the tool bench in the basement, I whacked my finger with a hammer. The pain was terrible, but there didn't seem to be of much use crying because there was no one home to offer sympathy. I walked around the house sucking my throbbing finger, finally arriving at the stairway. The telephone. Quickly, I ran for the footstool in the parlor and dragged it to the landing. Climbing up, I unhooked the receiver and held it to my ear. Information, please, I said into the mouthpiece just above my head. A click or two and a small, clear voice came into my ear. Information? I hurt my finger, I wailed into the phone. The tears came readily enough now that I had an audience. Isn't your mother home? came the question. Nobody's at home but me, I blubbered. Are you bleeding? No, I replied. I hit it with a hammer and it hurts. Can you open the icebox? She asked. I said I could. Then chip off a little piece of ice and hold it on your finger. That will stop the hurt. Be careful when you use the ice pick, she admonished. And don't cry, you'll be all right. After that, I called information please for everything. I asked for help with my geography and she told me where Philadelphia was and the Orinoco the romantic river I was going to explore when I grew up. She helped me with my arithmetic, and she told me that a pet chipmunk, I had caught him in the park just that day before, would eat fruits and nuts. And there was that time Petey, our pet canary, died. I called information, please, and told her the sad story. She listened, then said the usual things grown-ups say to soothe a child. But I was unconsoled. Why was it that birds should sing so beautifully and bring joy to whole families only to end as a heap of feathers feed up at the bottom of the cage? She must have sensed my deep concern, for she quietly said, Paul, always remember that there are other worlds to sing in. Somehow I felt better. Another day I was at the telephone. Information, said the now familiar voice. How do you spell fix? F-I-X. At that instant, my sister, who took unholy joy in scaring me, jumped off the stairs at me with a banshee shriek. I fell off the stool, pulled the receiver out of the box by its roots. We were both terrified. Information, please, was no longer there. And I was not sure at all that I hadn't hurt her when I pulled the receiver out. Minutes later, there was a man on the porch. I'm a telephone repairman. I was working down the street and the operator said there might be some trouble at this number. He reached for the receiver in my hand. What happened? I told him. 
Well, we can fix that in a minute or two. He opened the telephone box, exposing a maze of wires and coils, and fiddled a while with the end of the receiver cord, tightening things with a small screwdriver. He jiggled the hook up and down a few times, then spoke into the phone. Hi, this is Pete. Everything's under control at 105. The kid's sister scared him, and he pulled the cord out of the box. He hung up, smiled, gave me a pat on the head, and walked out the door. All this took place in a small town in the Pacific Northwest. Then, when I was nine years old, we moved across the country to Boston, and I missed my mentor acutely. Information, please, belonged in that old wooden box back at home, and I somehow never thought of trying the tall, skinny new phone that sat on the small table in the hall. Yet, as I grew up into my teens, the memories of those childhood conversations never really left me. Often in moments of doubt and perplexity, I would recall the serene sense of security I had when I knew that I could call information, please, and get the right answer. I appreciate now how very patient, understanding, and kind she was to have wasted her time on a little boy. A few years later, on my way back to college, my plane put down in Seattle. I had about a half an hour between plane connections, and I spent 15 minutes or so on the phone with my sister who lived there now, happily mellowed by marriage and motherhood. Then, really without thinking what I was doing, I dialed my hometown operator and said, information please. Miraculously, I heard again the small, clear voice that I'd known so well, information. I hadn't planned this, but I heard myself saying, could you tell me please how to spell the word fix? There was a long pause. Then came the softly spoken answer. I guess, said information please, that your finger must have healed by now. I laughed. So it's really still you? I wonder if you have any idea how much you meant to me during all that time. I wonder, she replied, if you know how much you meant to me. I never had any children, and I used to look forward to your calls. Silly, wasn't it? It didn't seem silly, but I didn't say so. Instead, I told her how often I had thought of her over the years, and I asked if I could call her again when I came back to visit my sister when the semester was over. Please do. Just ask for Sally. Goodbye, Sally. It sounded strange for information please to have a name. If I run into any chipmunks, I'll tell them to eat fruits and nuts. <laughs> Do that, she said. And I expect that one of these days you'll be off to your Orinoco. Well, goodbye. Just three months later, I was back again at the Seattle airport. A different voice answered, information. And I asked for Sally. Are you a friend? Yes, I said, an old friend. Then I'm sorry I have to tell you. Sally had only been working part-time in the last few years because she was ill. She died five weeks ago. But before I could hang up, she said, Wait a minute, did you say your name was Villard? Yes. Well, Sally left a message for you. She wrote it down. What was it? I asked, almost knowing in advance what it would be. Here it is. I'll read it. Tell him I still say there are other worlds to sing in. He'll know what I mean. I thanked her and hung up. I did know what Sally meant. True fact. We are drowning in plastic. I mean it. Plastic is an epidemic. And I'm not one to talk because I'm touching about seven different types of plastic right now. But we can do better. Here are the latest numbers from EcoWatch. Enough plastic every year is thrown away to circle the earth four times. 93% of Americans aged six or older 
test positive for the plastic chemical BPA. And most research shows that those BPA-free labels you read don't really mean much. 50% of the plastic that we use, we use it just once and then throw it away. And we currently only recover 5% of the plastics that we produce. The average American throws away 185 pounds of plastic every year. And it takes around 500 to 1,000 years for those plastics to start to degrade. So what that all means is that virtually every piece of plastic that was ever made still exists in some shape or form, unless it's been incinerated completely. And what plastics really like to take it out on is our oceans. Billions of pounds of plastics can be found in our oceans. There are giant garbage patches floating around in the oceans right now, and one is even twice the size of the entire state of Texas. And it's not just the amount, but it's how. Because the plastics in the ocean break down into such small segments that the pieces of plastic from one single bottle could end up on every mile of every beach throughout the world. That means that around 40% of the entire surface area of all the world's ocean has some plastics swirling around. And according to Greenpeace, approximately 70% of seabirds and 80% of sea turtles are ingesting plastic. As a result, over a million birds and 100,000 marine animals and sea turtles die every year. One of the major contributors to this epidemic are the seemingly harmless six-pack rings found around cans of sodas and beers. And then we consumers nonchalantly throw them into our trash cans without any regard for marine life because they'll just make it into the landfill, right? Well, until you learn that 80% of our landfill makes it into the ocean. So Florida-based Saltwater Brewery decided this was unacceptable. So they conjured up the brilliant idea to create edible six-pack rings that feed rather than kill marine life to offset the damage being done by plastic pollution. These rings are created from beer byproducts during the brewing process, such as barley and wheat, and are completely safe for humans and fish and all marine life to eat. In addition, the invention is 100% biodegradable, compostable, and all made from the leftovers of the brewing process. Considering that in 2015, Americans drank 6.3 billion gallons of beer and 50% of that volume was from cans, this impressive invention could have huge implications for the environment. The craft beer company says that the innovative design is as resistant and efficient as plastic packaging. They have their hurdles, cost, manufacturing, but the company writes, for brands to be successful today, it is no longer about being the best in the world, but rather being the best for the world and take a real stance. So behold, saltwater breweries, edible six-pack rings that put a shiny new perspective on the circle of life. Americans drank 6.3 billion gallons of beer last year, 50% in cans. Most of the plastic six-pack rings used end up in the ocean. Around the world, an estimated 1 million seabirds and 100,000 marine mammals and sea turtles become entrapped in plastic or ingested and die. 
People think that cutting the rings is enough, but birds and turtles eat the plastic either way. That's why we decided to do something to protect marine life and also connect with our primary target, surfers, fishermen, and people who love the sea. Saltwater Brewery presents Edible Six-Pack Rings, a six-pack ring that feeds animals instead of killing them. We developed a material made of barley and wheat remnants from the brewing process that replaces plastic and also is edible for sea animals. Besides being 100% biodegradable, compostable, and edible, it had to be strong enough to hold the weight and the typical handling of the cans. We launched the edible six-pack rings in all kinds of points of purchase. It's good beer. It's good for the ocean. I love these guys. I don't mind paying a little extra for such a big impact. You know, big guys should learn from this small brewery. If I can eat it, the turtles can eat it too. See, babe, you can enjoy your beer and save the environment. <laughs> this is the first time a 100% biodegradable and edible packaging is implemented in the beer industry. This innovative technology is as resistant and efficient as the plastic six-pack rings. If most craft breweries and big beer companies would implement this technology, the manufacturing cost would drop and be very competitive compared with the current plastic solution, saving hundreds of thousands of marine lives as a result. It's a big investment for a small brewery created by fishermen, surfers, and people that love the sea. We want to influence the big guys and, and kind of inspire them to also get on board. The Storycast is produced by myself. You can find me on Twitter at Russell Silva. Also thanks to first-time StoryCast contributor Jason Perry-Stevens. So that's it. Thanks for listening to Season 1. Be sure to check back in the next couple months every Friday for a quick little snippet. And then we'll see you in the fall for more eclectic stories wrapped in an intriguing theme. The StoryCast is supported by you every time you click on our Amazon banner and shop. So head over to StoryCastPodcast.com and click or bookmark our Amazon ad. And we get a kickback on every order you make every time. Simple as that. Thanks.